the study of race, politics, and culture at the University of Chicago, New Dawn, a podcast about understanding the connections between race, capitalism, and neoliberalism, with your host, Michael Dawson. So it's my pleasure to welcome to the New Dawn podcast, friends and colleagues on the Race and Capitalism program. Adam Gedichu, uh, Assistant Professor of Political Science, a political theorist, Dean of Chicago, and Nikhil Singh at NYU. Uh, which programs are you at now? Because I know uh, there's at least the two or three. The Social and Cultural Analysis and the Department of History. And we have been participating in a exciting discussion with several colleagues of ours on questions of political theory, critical race theory, philosophy, and how to approach the question of the study of race and capitalism, and I think as many of the theorists would prefer us to frame it, questions of racial capitalism. So we traditionally start our podcast in the very short run that we've had so far with the question for both of you. What brought you to the study of racial capitalism or this intersection of race and capitalism? I think I probably came to the study of race and capitalism via an interest in Marxism initially and Marxist theory. Like, man, like many of us, I think it, it, it was the framework that kind of brought us into critical thinking more broadly and systemic thinking about about the world and the structuring of hierarchy and inequality but of course within the marxist tradition we we find you know lots of silences around questions of race around questions of gender there's there there are lots of discussions of colonialism and and in marx in particular but they're not often not satisfying so so that so that was sort of one the, the sort of route into Marxism was kind of one one path and then as I started reading basically the kind of African American intellectual canon as somebody who understood themselves to be situated in the United States and wanted to work in the United States it, it became increasingly clear to me that this was the radical tradition this was the radical intellectual tradition this was the critical tradition that we needed to learn or that I needed to learn in order to make sense of of the politics of the place that I inhabited. And of course, what I began to discover was a kind of long series of, of engagements with Marxism by, by black thinkers, uh, engagements that were sometimes tense, sometimes contentious, sometimes extremely uh, sympathetic, um, often very creative, and I think they pushed the, the boundaries of my understanding of what, what radical thought was and I, I found that to be a, an incredibly productive join. So the join between black radical thinking and the thinking that came out of the Marxist tradition, I guess mostly the European Marxist tradition for me, became a very, a very powerful way to, to sort of start to ask questions. And I think, you know, we could, we could sort of talk obviously about specific thinkers, but, but for me, I, I guess the entry point in graduate school was really the work of Stuart Hall. You know, that was obviously a, a pivotal moment historically. It was the, the beginnings of Thatcherism and Reaganism, what we now think of as the kind of, the kind of consolidation of the neoliberal order. And I think the crisis in particular, which was a collaborative work that came out in the late 70s, 
really, I think, identified the join between, between racism and racial formation and the kind of transformations of, of Western, European, and North American capitalism as the kind of frame in which we had to situate our, our kind of political struggles. And I still think in many ways that that book presents a kind of horizon that, that we, we, still, we still sort of operate within. So maybe that's just where I'll stop for now. I would think my, my engagement with these questions actually began with black Marxists, and in particular as an African-American studies major in college, um, reading C.L.R. James and Du Bois's Black Reconstruction was the first time I encountered a way of thinking about race and capitalism together. And then from there, I think, found myself back to Marx and found myself in a classroom where we read Marx's kind of, from his dissertation work or his early thesis into capital. And I think from that moment, I've been interested in traditions of thought that both think with and against Marx, um, black Marxists being one version of that, and then post-colonial theorists like Partha Chatterjee, Dipesh Chakrabarty, a colleague of ours at the University of Chicago, who've been interested in the ways in which capitalism is, as Marx said, a universal project that had radically transformed the world, but that that manifests in different kinds of ways in different places. And so what I've been particularly interested in is how the process of capitalism's spread, its universalism, manifests differently, how it produces difference, racial difference, geographical difference, other kinds of difference in its, in its spread. Yeah, so I think I'll leave it there for now. One thing I find interesting in both of your responses, uh, several things, but one point of difference is that for my generation, I jokingly but accurately say that for people that came out of black Marxist formations, a lot of us did a lot of reading of everybody but Marx. We read a lot, you know, it was a number of thinkers from around the world, probably the European, we read most of the Lenin, but we also read a lot of, from the, from the Chinese experience, a lot from various African uh, movements, particularly that of the work of Amakar Cabral, which was quite formative. But the other, that was always in tension with the work of the James Boxes, the Malcolm X's, Harry Haywood, Cyril Briggs, black thinkers, some from within the, from throughout generally the Western Hemisphere who ended up in various locations in the U.S. who were within Marxist formations of one sort or another, but also were dealing very, both with theoretical questions of the role that race plays within modern capitalism and colonialism, but also with white supremacist attitudes within progressive and left movements. So it was, in some ways, it wasn't until the movement began to run aground in the, by the late 70s and early 80s that some of us started going back to Marx and taking more look at the, some of the theoretical traditions that were the least putative foundations for the practice that people had been engaging in. One of the, I've, been, I've learned a ton from both of your work, and one of the critical themes that seems to, to be that people like you have been working on for quite a while, but also that I think has become part of the popular imagination once again for the first time in a long time, at least in a broad way, are themes of empire and, those, and the connection to race. And I think certainly there's a fear among many sectors of the population within the U.S. and throughout the world 
of an increased period of perhaps intensified war after living with various wars for decades at this point. How does the intersection of empire and race and capitalism form your work and your thinking about the current politics that we are engaged in? So um, I moved to the United States from Botswana one, one month before September 11th, and September 11th was the second week of high school for me in the United States. And, you know, I had this experience that day of walk, I had to go to the counselor's office for some reason, and there was some, there were some set of classrooms in which you, the, there were big windows and you could see into the classroom and everyone was watching the television, but I was on the outside of that. And I think this, that was probably the one, a moment, I mean, I didn't know what was going to happen after all the things that happened, but this feeling of intense exclusion and the being mm -hmm. able to see in but be outside of as a kind of metaphor for the kinds of politics that we have seen then in a variety of ways. But for me, I think one, one question around empire that I've, I've been interested in is how a certain kind of humanitarian project, both in the contemporary moment but in earlier iterations also, gets mobilized to do the work of imperial expansion. So one of the things I write about is the League of Nations. And in that context, I look at, in particular, the relationship of Liberia and Ethiopia to the, Le to the League of Nations, both of which are independent states, members of the League of Nations at the time, get read as humanitarian crises, as sites where slavery is being practiced and where intervention is required. And, um, you know, you see in that moment an early iteration of the kinds of humanitarian projects that we see now, where both kind of economic and political interventions are being put together to recreate and reconstruct these sites. And, and, and what's interesting about that moment, and I think what's what gets again replayed in this one is the failure of those interventions get read as, are, are racialized, are read as failures of those societies rather than <laughs> resistance or, or failures of the interventions themselves. Mm -hmm. And so in that moment, that story about the League of Nations ends for me with the Italian invasion of Ethiopia that gets itself, represents itself to the League and to the world as a humanitarian project, as the, you know, the final kind of answer to the problem of, of humanitarian crisis in that country. Um, and we see this, I mean, more, more recently, I think, in the in the Libya intervention, in the mobilization of a language of responsibility to protect as the justification for, for that intervention. And both in Libya and in Iraq, the failures get read as cultural, as somehow the fault of the people who live in those spaces, rather than the kind of unintended consequences of the, of the actions that international actors are taking. There's so much to think about in what you what you just said. Um, I'll try to start with a little bit of my my story too. My my family moved from India to the United States in the late 1960s, so at the height of the Vietnam War. And I mean, I was very young, um, very very young. But one of my earliest memories um, as a child was going to the library with my mother and reading about the overthrow of the Allende government in Chile, in 1973. Uh, by the Nixon administration, the CIA. I mean, they were they were involved in the in the in basically greenlighting the coup, 
Uh, and there's a, there's a famous quote from Henry Kissinger where he says something to the effect of, matters are much too important to be left to the will of the Chilean voters. You know, ki kind of a sort of, sort of a, naked, um, a naked sense of, of a kind of anti-democratic um, animus and a, um, a sort of sovereign right to, or kind of a meta-sovereign right, or sort of run the world in a certain kind of way. And as a child, I mean, it just struck me as so, um, so wrong, uh, so deeply, <laughs> deeply wrong. Uh, obviously, it still does um, many, many, many years later. And the, the, the interesting thing in relationship to the previous part of our conversation is, is that it was really through the, the black intellectual tradition that I think I discovered internationalism, much more than through Marxism. And, and what I found, you know, when I, when I began reading deeply, was that the, the question of, of empire, the question of the international frame, the question of, of questions of global justice or, or the planetary horizons of, of, of racial domination were always at the forefront of the thinking of someone like Du Bois, obviously. Um, and we go back to that, that quote in Du Bois from Souls of Black Folk where he talks about the problem of the 20th century being the problem of the color line. And sometimes the quote ends there, but then he goes on to talk about the relation, the relation of people in the American in Africa and the islands of the seas and there's a there's a sort of sense of, of kind of thinking about the the global horizon um, and thinking about how people are uh, are separated through the kind of the kind of unevennesses that, that Adam's talking about that are produced through the expansion of capitalism through the, the the sort of modalities of basically armed commercial expansion that is that is what colonialism is um, and as a historian that focuses mostly on the post-World War II period, um, this is the period in which we're, we're told that that mode of domination ends, uh, and it ends sort of supposedly under the auspices of the United States serving as the guarantor of, of national sovereignty, of, of contract, of free trade, and so on and so forth. Um, and then, you know, you stumble upon these 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 episodes in in this history, like the Chilean coup, like the Guatemalan coup, like the Ara the Iran coup, um, the Vietnam War, the Korean War, the Korean War, which has a little bit more international legitimacy. But you start to read in the sort of history of the United States, and it's basically continuous history of armed intervention after World War II, and then you have to start to ask a certain kind of set of questions about, well, well, how, in what manner is this a break from colonialism and empire? That's what we're told. That's the narrative that frames it. There is something different about it. Um, and I think African-American thinkers who are struggling for equality in the United States really at a, at a kind of at a kind of higher level at a sort of with greater capacity with greater bandwidth beginning in World War II um, are also making those same arguments they're kind of saying well what's going on here in the inside is related to what's going on here in the outside and I I, I really try to map that in some ways in my in my first book it, it feels like a, a kind of vital um, a vital framework for me you know that that, that that sort of helped me to kind of think about the world that that what goes on inside the United States and the forms of of unevenness and and, and racial violence and exploitation that are kind of uh, managed through kind of the, the the processes of of the market and the wage relation and ostensibly um, kind of Pacific capitalism are actually uh, sort of writ small kind of colonialism writ small and I and I and I know that 
you know, in the 1960s, there was, there was sort of a lot of debate about whether an internal colonialism argument was, was valid. And I think, you know, to bring it back to what, what, what Michael was saying earlier, you know, the, the models were sometimes imported from, you know, from far afield. But, you know, to kind of make sense of the, of, of the, of the African-American situation in, through the lens of colonialism, as if there was a kind of, but I think the more, the, the kernel of truth in that argument is the, is the ways in which a certain kind of institutionalization of violence, a certain kind of dual system of law, a certain kind of process of, of super exploitation, a certain way in which some people are rendered disposable, not within the kind of the sanctioned economy, sort of, sort of forced into the unsanctioned economy, that those processes actually do cross borders. They're, they're not, they're, and they do, they do outlast formal equalities, and they also outlast formal, formal achievements of sovereignty in the formerly colonial world. And the U.S. in some ways it takes charge of kind of managing those unevennesses through its superior violence, you know. And I think that the, the black radical tradition or even the black liberal tradition, I think, after World War II sees that very clearly. And it sees it very clearly well through the Vietnam War when, of course, King makes his, his, his very dramatic uh, analysis of the relationship between the kind of failures of the war on poverty and the, and, and the fact that the United States, as he calls it, is the greatest purveyor of violence in the world. And I, I think maybe one of my questions is, is what happens to that, that tradition of thinking after the 1970s? And I'll just say one final note on this. During, during Hurricane Katrina, you may, you may remember, the Bush administration dispatched Condoleezza Rice to the Gulf Coast to make some remarks. Uh, of course, people were looking at what was happening in Hurricane Katrina and talking about climate refugees and, and talking about uh, that this looks like a war zone and really making the connection between the disaster that was unfolding there and the failure of government response to what was going on in Iraq and what had been revealed about, about torture and the, the kind of eruptions of the insurgency and, and the inability to contain the, the chaos. And, and what Rice said in her speech was, was remarkable because she basically said that, well, all of this that's happening to, to black folks in New Orleans, it's just a vestige of the Old South. This is, not, this is not really what black life is like in the United States anymore. And that the United States, because of the black freedom movement, uh, was able to vanquish what she called the empire of Jim Crow. I'm a, a true champion of democracy overseas. So it was a, a kind of a remarkable sort of, I know you might call it a perversion of the, of the black internationalist tradition to kind of, to kind of seize on the mantle of the, of the real achievements of the civil rights movement and then to kind of use them to legitimate ongoing armed intervention in the world that was viewed by, by, by I think most people in the world as, as broadly illegitimate. And I think that that moment really, really struck me and, and really disturbed me. And, and, I th and I really thought about how we need to, to kind of wrest back the, the kind of radical internationalist tradition that, that would, would have been actually, and, and is, to the extent it still exists, extremely critical of the way in which the US uses force in the world. One of the narratives that the Rice quote really highlights is the in the post-civil rights, I would argue, post-black power era, that 
questions of self-determination have been solved either by the gaining a putative gaining of sovereignty by formerly colonized uh, spaces or by the granting of formal equality above to populations like, you know, I know you are running extensively on questions of self-determination. How do you, how have you been thinking about questions of self-determination in post-colonial, post-civil rights, post-black power contexts? question. Um, I, so the book project I'm working on now is an attempt to rethink what, what self-determination meant at its height. So after World War II into the 1970s. And it began as a project of kind of maybe trying to recover and reconstruct what I thought were lost alternatives and really thinking about the ways that a set of anti-colonial thinkers that range from George Padmore to Kwame Nkrumah, Michael Manley, Julius Nerere, always were very, very clear about the limits of formal equality in the international order and were working very hard in a lot of ways to try and get something other than just simply sovereign equality. And so those projects, I think, took a variety of forms. One was granting a right to self-determination, which did not act, did not exist before the before 1960. You know, I think there's one, a way in which the project of anti-colonial nationalism gets read as some fulfillment or realization of something that existed before. And one of the arguments of the book is that, in fact, this was a radically novel project, and it wasn't simply realizing, say, a Wilsonian you know, liberal internationalism. So the right to self-determination, the effort to create regional federations in the West Indies and in, in, on the African continent, and then finally the new international economic order of the 1970s. And so each project, I think, is, you know, what ended up happening is each chapter now is, reads like the rise and fall of self-determination. There is this moment of possibility, but always kind of an under undermining of those projects. So just as the right to self-determination is being passed, the U.S., the Soviet Union, and others are in the Congo, you know, supporting a secession, assassinating Lumumba and others. So there's a way in which the long history of racial hierarchy in the international order continues in that moment to rear its ugly head. And in the 1970s in particular, I think there's a set of both crises in the kind of third world, internal to the third world formation, I think that have to do with the ways in which difference and, and, you know, hierarchy within within that body of people itself is beginning to show up in a variety of ways, especially around the oil crisis. And then a real kind of I think the United States very explicitly, in a way that they weren't really trying to do in the early moments, um, very explicitly standing against the new international economic order project. And so part of what, part of the story I think after that has been about, one, I think once once the Cold War ends, the ways that the United Nations can no longer be the space for for the third world, it was, the Security Council increasingly having more power, the General Assembly being a very, playing a very minor role in the UN space. And then the ways that the, the language of self-determination is explicitly challenged by liberals in, in the United States, international lawyers and others very close to the State Department, who, are, who basically begin to make the point, and Nikhil brought up Daniel Moynihan yesterday, but who are beginning to make the point that, you know, 
this, the third world is a set of authoritarians, basically, who don't actually represent their people, who don't stand for democracy, who don't stand for human rights. And the language of human rights, which had been, I think, quite central to black radicals in the United States and anti-colonial nationalists abroad, begins to be mobilized against the against anti-colonial thinkers beginning in the 1970s and into the 1990s. So there's a one international lawyer, Thomas Frank, who in the early, early 90s writes an article called, that's like from the right to self-determination to the right to democracy. And that has been the language for the last 20 years or so is that, that the right to self-determination should actually mean the right to democracy and the ways that that can be then mobilized to support the interventions we've seen over the last two decades, I think. So for me, the story is really about the ways that self-determination was the language with, through which anti-colonial nationalists were imagining not only new states, nation states, but a new international order, and the, fa- and the ways that that gets co-opted and no longer, I think, is the central ways in which people are imagining alternatives. So one of the things I've been particularly interested in the contemporary moment is how reparations has come back on the scene and how, you know, in particular in two years ago when the Caribbean community sued Britain, the Netherlands, and France for reparations around native genocide, the slave trade, and slavery. What's interesting to me about that, the, that project is it still is thinking through the same problems that my set of characters from the early moment are thinking about. So the ways that, say, the le- what Eric, Will- Eric Williams' story about the relationship between capitalism and slavery is central to the ways in which they're making the argument for reparations. But whereas those earlier characters were thinking about how the post-colonial state or the West Indian Federation could do the work of overcoming problems of dependence and underdevelopment, the, the focus now seems to be on kind of, you know, unpaid debts, the criminal enrichment of Europe, and so recentering and problematizing the ways that Europe, Europe's position in the world or the West's position in the world is actually uh, made possible by this kind of domination. So, and I think it's a very interesting the reparations project, I think, is a very wide-ranging one that, you know, things from uh, debt cancellation to thinking about the public health crises in the Caribbean as as coming out of this long legacy of, of slavery. So I think there's a whole set of political possibilities there, and we'll see where it goes. One of the first t- movements on the international era, in the modern era that both of you write about in rep- right after World War II when the United Nations was being formed and African-American activists who were very much part of the radical tradition were beginning to make claims of genocide on the international stage. One of the interesting ways that was thwarted was through an alliance between an Eleanor Roosevelt-led U.S. delegation and the Soviet Union, neither of which wanted to really have uh, the abilities for subjugated minorities to be able to make claims about uh, human rights internal to a political system. 
Then again, right before 9-11, we see at the World Conference Against Racism in Dublin, in this case, if you think about racial democracy within the context of an international racial hierarchy, those discussions get thwarted by the alliance of the United States with the Western European powers, absolutely refusing to either participate in the U.S. case or to discuss questions of not just of reparations, but even apologies, or even classifying slavery as a crime, <coughs> crime against humanity. One of the reasons I bring up these two different episodes, one somewhat more recent, another one over a generation ago, is that a topic that's come up is how to think about racial hierarchy in the international global scene today. And one of the, thing, one of the aspects that we have not really theorized is the, how to think about countries such as China and India playing a global role, not just in terms of neoliberalism and a new capitalist order, but also in terms of their effect on a global racial democracy that has yet to be even begun to be achieved. How should we think about a global ra racial hierarchy in the current global era, in the current era of capitalism? Oh, it's, a, it's such a great question, and I think it, it really is the question that demands a kind of collaborative research project of its own in some ways, because I think our, our area expertise are, are always going to limit us somewhat. You know, I think you're, the, two, the, two ins, the two moments that you, you highlight are really, are really interesting, because I think, again, they bring us back to the, the, what you, I think, call, just called a sort of thwarted internationalism, which perhaps in some ways ended up investing in the nation state by default, you know, as the sort of as the sort of necessary horizon or in or in the United States, even in the competing traditions in nationalism or a kind of a fantasy of withdrawal or in citizenship as a kind of horizon for justice. And and I think the 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 challenge was always to try to figure out how to produce real autonomy at, at a local scale that could also then scale up and make demands with kind of the actors that really that really held the levers of power and i think of all of those those kinds of experiments you know like like the bogs discussion of the city as a sort of base or or huey newton's you know framing of intercommunalism sort of the notion of oppressed communities around the world you know the the sort of the sort of different ways of kind of trying to imagine how do you break out of a controlling apparatus, really, which is what the nation state became. And in some ways, the United States really understood that very early on, because essentially what it, what it did in, in building up the nation states that it, that it had sponsorship over was basically creating a kind of a police order, sort of an internal police order for those states. So I think we, 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 you know, we still are kind of grappling with uh, how to think about ways to to sort of scale up the demands of democracy, which in some ways can only be real realized locally, but that are completely thwarted by these actors that actually have power and scale that that most ordinary people lack. You know, and I think the the reparations the reparations moment is is fascinating because I think it's a, a kind of a re-eruption of, of 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 these these repressed demands that weren't met. I think the kinds of indigenous resurgence we're seeing around the world right now are similar. You know, and they and and the people who are fighting in Standing Rock really understand themselves as related to struggles that are going on in in Latin America, in the Pacific, and in other places. And I think for for nation states like China and India. India, I mean, my, my basic presumption is that as capitalist nation states, 
they have been internally colonizing projects. They have been projects that have been built upon the repression of different kinds of difference of people who maybe uh, were living outside of the value form, particularly indigenous people, and that insofar as nationalism becomes a kind of organizing principle for sort of homogenizing and managing the population, it, it invariably involves these kinds of productions of unevennesses and divisions and sort of sort of enemies within. You know, certainly uh, India, a context that I know a, a little bit more about, we've, we've sort of seen that very dramatically in relationship to to the, the kind of Muslim minority, which is a, a massive minority. I mean, it's not a small, small group of people. And, you know, w one of the places where I've done some research, actually, uh, with, with, my, with my partner, some of these Chinese factories that have been set up in the, in the U.S. South, the way that the Chinese managers talk about workers in, in the South is, you know, sort of similar to the ways in which managers everywhere talk about workers, which is, you know, they're, you know, they're, they're lazy, they're shiftless, they're unaccountable, mm. they're, they're, you know, um, they're, so, so, so with, within the kind of, within the kind of mechanism by which capitalist firms produce a pliable workforce, you know, there is certainly something, the kind of process of exploitation that is, that is, that is bound up with the production of racial hierarchy. I mean, that certainly a, a, would require more conversation for us here to sort of, to sort of get at that. I mean, in some ways, the core question is, is where do we, where do we find the origins of racism? I mean, are the, is it, is it really intrinsic within capitalism? Um, is it something that sort of comes sort of from the outside, from a kind of a pre-capitalist or, or a, 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 kind of, a kind of a different formation. And, you know, I, I tend to try not to believe that I could resolve that naughty question because it's such an enormous one. But I think to some degree, it is, it, the, the answer is, is sort of both, you know, which is to say we have specific histories of racialization that come out of Atlantic slavery, that come out of the settlement projects, that come out of kind of the traumas of, of sort of war and conquest. And then there is something within the history of capitalism itself in the ways in which it's, it, it sort of produces a, uh, a population that is subject to the market that's kind of stripped of its prior social formation, social relationality, that is, that is not unrelated to colonization, war, enslavement, settlement, you know, that, that they, and that they join up at a certain point historically. So we shouldn't expect a, ch a China-dominated world if that's what we end up uh, with uh, being a world that is somehow uh, without racial hierarchy. Racial hierarchy is something that I think is constantly being reproduced, you know, within the unevennesses that are produced by capitalism and out of these longer histories that um, are unresolved, these longer histories of domination that are, that are unresolved and that have produced people in, in their wake, right, in the, in the sort of, in the submerged kind of sort of decimation of, of their, you know, their ability to basically make, make life. Anyway, I guess I should stop there. One of, one of the things I've been struck by, by the work of, of particularly, I guess, recent, some, some recent historians like Peter Husson is the degree to which it's been so, was so conscious that 
a economic entity like a Wall Street firm will go into an area like the Caribbean to set up and experiment with new type of financial instruments, new type of financial systems, and at the same time impose a racial hierarchy, import, import that in from the U.S. So that at the same time that you're experimenting with new forms of capitalism and capitalist organization, you're also imposing a racial hierarchy that wasn't there before, or at least certainly wasn't in the form that it was, that it was there before. What are the, tell us a little bit more, both of you, about the projects you're working on now. I did want to say one thing about the global democracy conversation a bit earlier, which is in my field of political theory and also in political philosophy, there has been for the last, I would say, since the 90s, but maybe a bit earlier, this kind of preoccupation or return to the question of cosmopolitanism, um, Mm -hmm. both from the kind of dominant Rawlsian frameworks and and the Habermasian ones. And yeah, concerns about that debate has been the ways that it elides questions of empire and racial hierarchy. And it imagines, you know, some kind of, you know, takes, takes say, collective demands not seriously, imagines the individual as sort of the primary unit of analysis, the morally relevant actor. So there's been, for instance, a very interesting debate in that in that context around what redistribution might look like, what the duties and obligations of the of the West are to the global South, but quite ahistorical, I think. And one of the exciting things for me about the reparations project now is the ways in which it is trying to make demands, collective demands, and historically informed demands, and gives us a way at getting at the question of redistribution in mm-hmm. a very different so- sort of way. So I just wanted to say that. The thing, I guess, in addition to the book that I'm finishing up on self-determination, I'm working on this paper, uh, which sort of came out of that project. And it's a paper on a set of economists, primarily economic historians, primarily in Jamaica and also in Tanzania, Walter Rodney, George Beckford, Lloyd Best are the primary characters. and. It's called the Plantation and Comparative Perspective, and it's during this moment of the late 60s, early 70s, the set of economists are, the question they're asking is, okay, independence has been, you know, happening for the last 20 years or so, but the kinds of transformations that we imagined have not yet happened, and why is that, and why is it that development economics, for instance, has failed to provide the kinds of transformations it said it would. And and so their their answer to that question is that we have to rethink the way the concepts through which we understand these societies, that the concepts that have been sort of imported from Europe are inadequate to understanding the particular dynamics of these societies. And so they are thinking through what they call plantation societies and have a very Imagine the plantation as you know primarily a new world institution, but also a third world institution that gets replicated throughout the colonies. That that includes the U.S. South, and so they're they're trying to think about what is it about plant, what set of dynamics, economic, political, sociological, come out of the plantation mm-hmm. that structure these societies. And so for me, I think one of the things political theorists and political theorists interested especially in the post-colonial world have to do is is sort of conceptual innovation. How do we think about the specificities of these societies even as we understand the kind of the ways that empire has reshaped and reconstituted them? So for me, the set of characters in the 60s and 70s 
are doing that that kind of work. And the article is both an attempt to trace out what they what they thought these plantation economies were, but also a kind of model for the sort of work I think we should be doing in this moment. Thank you. Um, so I have two two projects. Uh, one is one is just finished and is coming out in the fall. It's the the title of the book is Race in America's Long War and. The, the long war is the term John, Donald Rumsfeld uses to talk about the what he's imagining as a multi-generational war after after 9/11 but particularly after the invasion of Iraq and so what really interested me in, in 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 the in the work that went into that book was kind of thinking about the way the long war was beginning to recapitulate kind of afterlives of slavery and settlement in its very framing the sort of the sort of visions of of Iraq as a kind of a disordered frontier savage place that Americans had to once again wage savage war and of course, this isn't a new story. We see the the transit of of Indian country metaphors, sort of through American war making, sort of sort of from 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 that from that moment forward. But I, I it began it, it sort of began a process for me in kind of trying to track back and make sense of why you know what what is what was what were the sources of this of of, of these wars and and how might we sort of look into the interior of American society and history to understand them better. Uh, so much of American war making has been framed as kind of the, the maintenance of global order. Uh, this was such a, so clearly a, a globally disordering action in so many respects. And, and it seemed to me that we, to understand it, we needed to understand something about the, the, the disordering internally that had kind of preceded it. And, and that really led me to, to an engagement with the work that so many important thinkers have have done over the last two decades, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, Naomi Murakawa, Elizabeth Hinton, and many, many others on the kind of the kind of origins of the carceral state, which, you know, as Elizabeth Hinton tells us, was was declared by Lyndon Johnson as a war within our borders um, in 1967. And um, obviously, that war language carries on, and it leads to, you know, the the, the building of the the biggest penal state in, in in world history. And it seemed to me that that had to have something to do with with where we end up in 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 2001, um, and the sort of readiness to 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 begin to expand and uh, imagine a sort of a detention and 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 containment apparatus that would extend outside. And so I started to think about how to track, again, the sort of the relationship between the inside and the outside, uh, the inner war and the outer war. And that's really what that book tries to do over, over a, a series of kind of meditations rather than a kind of a, a sort of a single sustained monograph. The second project sort of brings me back more to the conversation we're having, which is that, which is really a, a project on the origins of the Cold War and in some ways the political economy of the Cold War as a, as a U.S. project. So it's, it's still a U, very much a U.S. US-based sort of research project. And the argument really there is, is that the Cold War is a political economic project that is designed to manage the transformations of colonial and racial order. And I think if we start to see the Cold War that way and to think about it that way and to recognize how that's very central within the policy thinking, it gives us a very different kind of story. And it's not to say that anti-communism is not a, an important 
you know, question or that the role of the Soviet Union in the world and is, is not one that, that sort of has to be taken into account. But, it, but, but, but really, when I think you read in the documents and the archive, you really see that this kind of question of, of, of a sort of ambitious political economic management of a world that is coming out of colonialism is really at the forefront of much American thinking. And if, if that becomes the way in which we start to reframe the Cold War period, and I'm certainly not alone in trying to do this, I mean, Adam's doing this and, and many others, then I think we start to see the present differently and start to see the kinds of devolutions and unravelings that are going on right now uh, differently. Well, thank you. This has been a fun conversation, and it's the worst way to spend a Saturday morning. <laughs> <laughs>